Good morning, people of the world. This is Hacker Mike coming at you from the heart of New Jersey. <clears throat> it is four, oh, 5 a.m. I got up at 4.30, thanks to Jocko. And um, I didn't think much. I just found my shoes, made a coffee, put on my stuff, and I'm off for my walk. I just listened to a the Cyberwire Daily podcast, which is a security podcast, and um, <clears throat> they talk about a capture the flag that was created by this one uh, group where they invited people to uh, come in and hack a system. They had a CTF engine that gave people points that would score them if they made certain mm, breaches, I suppose. And um, that's kind of interesting. And I think uh, a lot of companies that use open source should uh, also invest in hosting conferences for the technologies that they use. Um, <clears throat> that they uh, invite people to talk about. You know, if you're using, um, I don't know, <clears throat> struts in Java, you might want to uh, call for talks on that and have people present stuff you know, relevant to your, your, uh, your technology stack. You could invite people to come, open source contributors to talk about that. That might be a good way to uh, attract people, potential um, employees and contributors, and also increase your company profile. So uh, prizes are also good competitions. I mean, the Capture the Flag is a hacking competition. Anyway, I'm going to continue listening, and I'm going to start my podcast this morning with this episode, this segment, and I'm going to upload it directly instead of talking for hours. And then, as I walk today, I will, because I got an early start, we could expect a couple of segments. I will upload those segments as we go, and we're going to have something like a live podcast So, um, I figure for the next three hours until 9 a.m., I will be podcasting, broadcasting segments live. So, keep up to date, check it out, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to share this link to the episode, and, uh, yeah, and also we have a, um, call-in line that you can leave me a voicemail. Let me give you that number again. 609-429-4144. So uh, if you call in now, I should be able to get your voicemail on the uh, podcast. So here we go, guys. And uh, yeah, good morning. Let's see. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to do a clip here, guys, 
And um, this podcast that I'm listening to, it's really interesting. It's called um, it's called Design Cybernetics: Navigating the New World from Fisher and Hare. They are Germans, I think, um, and <clears throat> they talk about uh, different things. It's a really complicated one, but this one particular clip I liked a lot. So. And I've been attempting on how to capture it. Obviously, I could just um, take the audio and clip it. But um, I'm going to do it old school. I'm just going to play it in the background on speaker and then record from the speaker. So here we go. Yes, although your tangents are, are uh, rewarding as well. But uh, I was asking about the, the notion of acting to understand yeah, rather than thinking exactly. we need to simply understand thank you, thank before you. we can act. Good. So we, uh, we, we have this cycle of, um, of acting and then seeing what comes out of it and constructing our understanding in response. So I believe that the, the acting is a necessary component in this cycle. Yeah, the, the cycle is always one of doing something and then trying to find out or trying to construct what does this mean to me what what uh, what does it mean about my environment and so the acting part is an integral component and um, i would say in in any kind of conversational encounter you can't really say you you think first and then you act because whatever you think has to come from somewhere and uh, in a radical constructivist view the acting um, is is absolutely important. Like a child has to act in order to really understand what what the world around him is. If you give a child a warning to say this is very hot, it's much more effective to say uh, to to take something that is maybe not as hot and say this is what hot feels like. You don't want to go there. So the the whole idea of we do something and then we think through it, think about it, will give us a different perspective on what it means to, to act, especially, you know, in, in the creative fields. We are often told to behave more scientifically and to, let's say, do the analysis and do the research and then we implement it and then we get very good design. And I would say this is a misconception because very often in design we have to do and then to analyze what we have done and then to do again and to really include um, the, the, the uh, analytic, uh, analytic part, if you want, the research part into the design process that our doing can be a form of design uh, and uh, research as well. All right. So how's that for a cool, cool clip? So basically, um, learning by doing and um, doing is part of the analysis and um, this gets into my whole idea of introspection. So observing yourself while doing something or observing your internal state while thinking about someone else doing something or reflecting over what you have done as a, uh, <clears throat> I guess, mirror neurons. And, and this brings up the topic that I've been thinking about where basically mirror neurons are those that model other people's behavior and that's how we know other people or anything in the outside world. I guess some form of a gateway, uh, gateway neurons where we have an input from another person 
and a set of neurons um, <clears throat> that model that person. And um, yeah, that's also why people wearing masks is really um, cutting away at that. It's kind of giving us the um, patient on the table feeling if everyone surrounding you is wearing a mask, you're like, oh, I must be on an operating table. These are the doctors. Well, anyway, um, that's the clip for now. I'm going to see if this all worked out and uh, listen to it. I hope it worked out. All right, now we get to the next clip um, where they talk about science as being a form of design. And um, <clears throat> I will go on and say design is a form of semiosis, the creation of symbol, the creation of a meme artifact. And um, <clears throat> we talked about uh, on this podcast uh, the theory that um, philosophers just create models for understanding chaos. They're not discovering what's there, they're creating constructs, they're constructing things to capture what's out there. Okay, well let's listen to what they have to say, because this is really good. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about about both research and design in a moment. But I just I wanted to, to flag that you mentioned this um, this comparison between science and design, which is so important. And of course, um, Glanville's uh, fairly bold claim that science is in fact a restricted subset of design, which I I love. Um, and it's it's interesting also to explore in ways. And Glanville did this as well. Um, uh, it's primarily where where I, I get this notion from that. Um, in some instances, the problem is not that science is actually all that different from design. It's that science, in a sense, pretends it's much more linear than it actually is. Yeah. And that scientists actually do, you know, you design an experiment 15 times in a way that doesn't work. And then you finally, along the way, finally stumble on the one that gives you the result you were looking for in the first place. The difference being that you had a result in mind in the first place. Uh, when I thinking about design versus uh, versus uh, science in which, okay, I want to prove X. I need a res an, an experiment that proves X. 15 times it didn't give me X. Oh, the 16th one, it gave me X. But then the one I write up in my article is, is the one that worked. And that whole process of searching, of stumbling, of learning from mistakes, of, of post-rationalization, all of it is, is buried, yeah? Totally, I would totally agree, and uh, I think both of us agree that um, if you if you really look into the practice of anything that will develop new thoughts, and even be it you know scientifically uh, develop new thoughts, you will always find that conversation. You will always find the the necessary aimlessness or being, like Tom said, out of control, in order to get the new. Because if you're completely in control, you will not able to uh, to let in that which is not yet known because you are in control and that means you already know everything so here also comes in a, a big theme in the book and that is design research remember it's the Springer design research or design research foundation series and um, 
the, the whole topic of what is the relationship of design and research um, comes up in several chapters. And uh, for example, Ted Krüger and Ute Besenecker in their contribution, they um, they go in depth in this process and they do it in a very nice way. They actually provide some case studies and they, um, they show what it means to work at the same time in a designerly manner and scientifically. And you will find instances of, of these, um, the, the very cybernetic way of not casting aside one paradigm, but actually using both and using them in a very dynamic way during a design process. Yes, thank you. And is, can you say just a few more things about the implication of acting for design practice as well? Um, acting, uh, you mean acting for design? Um, normally, yeah, yeah. you would yeah, construct the, yeah. the circle as uh, acting to understand and understanding to act. Yeah, and its, impl and, and its implications for specifically design practice. Yeah, so for design practice, I believe design practice itself uh, will not necessarily change, but very often we're in the position that we have to explain the necessities of design practice to others. And there we come into the territory of the narratives. So, for example, in education, you have to be in control to uh, to be able to justify what you're doing. And uh, the same in, in any kind of commercial context. So the the actual process of design and the narratives which we, with which we sell design and they can be different and I believe that the, when you look at what designers do and also what uh, let's say creative scientists do who come up with a lot of new thoughts there will be a lot of similarities but what is different is how we frame them and how we uh, how we write about them and uh, you are completely right um, we if we wanted to really look at the, the actual practice, uh, we would find a lot of similarities across all these disciplines. Whenever we are dealing with the new, we need to act, we need to experiment, we don't know where we're going, and we have to just um, listen to what the results are telling us. Yeah, and the... All right. Well, that's pretty neat stuff. Um, this podcast is really worth listening to. And um, <clears throat> I'm also thinking about the design in terms of aesthetics in computing. Like people are always worried about clean concepts and uh, clean models. And I really think that's also a form of a design. Like this code looks pretty, this load look code looks clean, this code does not look clean type of decisions. Um, this is understandable, this is not understandable. Yeah, so that's one thing. And um, another thing I've been thinking about is the uh, the whole process of introspection we mentioned yesterday, collecting data from a compiler, um, simulating the compiler basically, or reverse engineering the compiler. <clears throat> um, that as a process to be automated. Um, that's what's kind of going through my mind, so I can't really grasp it into words right now, oh, but I have a visual in my head, and I will continue on that uh, later. Let's uh, put this segment out, and yeah, this is our continuing live stream from this morning, so tune in, and we will continue. Yeah, so I'm going to try recording directly in the app. Now, um, I'm listening to a new podcast, which is the um, 
Beata Starawarska, Sassur's Linguistics, Structuralism, and Phenomenology. And she's going to talk about the difference with the connection between I and you. So let's see if we can get that uh, recorded here. To develop this notion of um, what I call in the book I and you connectedness. So the idea that the self uh, stands in relation to a real or possible or virtual or imagined address C to a you. And I drew in this book extensively on uh, pronominal discourse, so these I and you pronouns, and I looked at how they uh, function in ordinary discourse, in ordinary conversations, and, they, and how they establish the I as a speaker who is oriented toward a you. And then also I looked into how these I and you roles or position are both interdependent in ordinary discourse, but also how they alternate so that there isn't a fixed I or an ego, but the self is sort of shaped both by the speaker uh, or the subject and the addressee uh, uh, mode. So there is no really a solitary ego at all based on this analysis, but we are always uh, participants in a, in a relation with, uh, with, uh, with an other. And so through this analysis, through this emphasis rather on phenomenal discourse, I became very acutely aware of how language shapes our identity. All right. So that's like a little taste of what she's talking about there. I think it turned out pretty good. Um, yeah. I mean, that also gets into the question of I and you in this podcast. Like, who is my listener? You know, are you my friend, as in Mr. Robot, that invisible person in my head? Is it my dad, who's like one of my only listeners, it turns out? He listens to all my episodes. Hey, dad, how you doing? Thanks for listening. Or are you some geeky person that I imagine might be listening, or one of my fellow podcasters who appear on the show? Well, my dad was also on this show, so I have to invite him on for another episode, really. Um... <clears throat> So that's the question of who is the I and who is the you? Who are we talking to here? We haven't really defined our um, we haven't really defined our audience exactly yet. It's kind of random, and she says it shifts. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, I'm gonna listen to this some more and see if I can pull out any clips. Uh, all right. Okay, now I'm on a busy road, so this might not work out, but basically uh, I found another segment in this talk that really resonates with me, so I'm going to share it. We'll see how that works. Clear um, from your from your reading of the Naklas and the way that Sassur, Sassur sort of reveled in the complexity, or he really respected that complexity and seemed to be willing to really stay with it. Um, and part of what unfortunately happens in the editorial hands that the course came into is that it's there are these points at which they just try to make things simple for the sake of science or something. Yeah, that's uh, making things simple for the sake of science and he's reveling in complexity. Um, I really resonate with that. And I think he's also getting caught up in the stream of consciousness, the stream of random. Um, so... We're going to continue. Like this, right? To make the object approachable. But it seems like 
all you know Saussure himself was rather taken with this complexity was was rather um, motivated by it and really found it he seems to have gone towards it in his writings yes I definitely think it's fair so that's I think the, the, the kind of the beauty but also the drama and the tragedy of Saussure's work and of his life is that he was consumed with this question of, of, of what language is and what is the best way of approaching it. Uh, he was very dis- disillusioned with the state of the sciences at his time, and he thought that sciences needed to undergo a radical reform. Uh, it, at the same time, you know, he had a hard time writing a book on general linguistics himself, uh, and I think in part because he was disillusioned uh, with the of normative expectations as to uh, what a recognizable academic discipline should look like, and I think he was uh, uh, perhaps disillusioned with the academic disillusioned with the normative expectations of what a an academic uh, journal should look like. Yeah, I can resonate with that. Uh, format of a treatise that needs to be organized, you know, using this architecture of uh, parts and chapters. Uh, I, you know, he um, he wrote incessantly. So I talk about the, uh, you know, the many notebooks that he filled with notes, and they have to do with all aspects of of of, of, of language. Um, uh, but he resisted publishing uh, kind of a recognizable academic treatise himself. So I think that he is consumed with this question of, um, you know, how do we begin uh, philosophy or science, which I compared to the, the questions that Hegel raises in, in his work as well, right, about, like, what is the right way of, uh, you know, of beginning a, 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 a science that is supposed to give us a kind of a, a complete overview of this very complex heterogeneous field called called language. Um, so I believe that Saussure is extremely self-reflective in that process, that he is very acutely aware of the methodological you know, issues, concerns raised when we approach a an, an object so-called that is as complex and and uh, heterogeneous as language itself, right? Because language exists in the present moment, but also in the past. It um, you know it's written. It is also spoken. We can attend to the signifying dimension of it. You know the acoustic dimension, the graphic dimension, or we can attend to the idea, the signified content that is conveyed by it. Uh, you know, we can talk about the social world, the speech community where language emerges, or we can talk about the documents, uh, um, this oral or written that this community produces, right? So wherever we look, we're going to encounter these dual notions and, uh, you know, and how can we be scientific about that? Right? How can we be how can we be scientific considering also the fact that the scholar is a speaking subject uh, as well, and so is entangled and immersed in the very you know notion or object so called that is to be uh, to be examined. Right. So so I think that um, this here is a very complex, self reflective, philosophical thinking. Yeah, and also um, the expression of knowledge about that topic 
from the speaker, again, is in that language itself. And some philosophers say that language or English language is a horrible, horrible language for expressing philosophical concepts. Pose as the style of approaching the question of, of language oftentimes resemble, resembles the uh, phenomenological orientation that pays attention to these questions of subjectivity, of consciousness, of our um, kind of irreducible uh, entanglement or involvement in the very subject matter that we seek to um, examine. Yeah, and that's so part of what I wanted to ask about was was Derrida's reading assessor, which is so influential. In fact, I told. Okay, so that's the clip for now. So in this next clip, they talk about uh, language as being written language as being an unnatural thing, and um, I have my take on this whole idea that the language is a meme, and it migrates to different areas and even a language would eventually migrate into a let's say a neurological network or artificial neural net a deep learning system where it could also mutate and uh, and um, let's say self-replicate so let's take that perspective and listen to what they say here the source is, you'll see that Sestir does use this analogy, but in fact it functions quite differently. So he says that language itself is a bit like a duck that has been hatched by a chicken. And that is necessarily so. So that means that language itself necessarily, whether it's speaking or writing or, or, or even thinking, is necessarily subject to multiple adoptions in various unforeseeable milieus. So we don't know exactly where it's going to be hatched, and we don't know exactly you know, where it's going to be uh, a, you know, adopted and taken up and taken into new directions as well, right? So, so um, it, yeah. To the point of appreciation, right, for Cesar, like he loves this. Well, exactly, he loves it. I mean, I think that's the, you know, that's, 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 that's exactly what to him is fascinating about language, right? It, it, it's this unpredictability it's this of it. It, it is, it's the fact that it is subject always to, you know, to, to foreign forces, that it is not controlled uh, by, say, you know, the, the author of Esperanto, right? To be uh, a living language, it needs to be taken up in, in all kinds of contexts, and its fate is unknown. Uh, it cannot be scripted in advance. So, so Sri loves it. He is not, you know, this doctrinal, dogmatic thinker who wants to homogenize language into this you know, portable little box where, a, a, you know, an object a, a can be contained. A, he, uh, I think he revels, like you said, in, in this mystery uh, of, of, of language itself. Uh, and so all this raises the question, like, why didn't Derrida look at the Nachlas? Why is he so attached to this volume of the course in general linguistics? Why is he deconstructing this book and not attending to the textual universe where perhaps deconstruction is already underway within Saussure's own writings? Uh, that's a question, that, that's a challenge that I raised to, to Derrida, right, for being so firmly attached to the book, for being a citizen of the civilization of the book in the way that... Okay. 
So that was just the clip I wanted to share, and um, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. So language finds its way into the human mind. The meme um, infects the mind, infects the writing. It finds different representations, different expressions for its um, <clears throat> replication. And eventually it might find its, own, its way into a digital sphere. And I guess we talk about the um, mathematical structure of language as being, you know, able to contain and express other things like a containment structure or a generator structure, a skeleton for another generator, as we talked about with the introspector. So I thought this is all kind of relevant, at least for me. I don't know how you guys think about it, but uh, hey, you're welcome to join me in my journey here. Okay guys, well that's a wrap for today. It's already uh, 8 o'clock, which is about the time I need to get home because uh, I also want to spend some time with my family and um, get an early start at work. So this was today's episode. I hope you enjoy our experimental nature. And um, <clears throat> this is just the beginning of a new form for this show, which is going to involve clips. Once I get this audio sorted out, I guess I could just use an audio editing program to listen to and clip the episodes that I'm interested in, so I can include the raw audio in the um, <clears throat> in the show. But uh, I hope you excuse the different levels of audio. Maybe I have to go back and do some post-production and normalize the uh, the levels. Um, <clears throat> hope I didn't burst anyone's ears. But if you're anything like me, at least you have the earphone volume control near you, so you can go up and down if you need to. And um, I'm starting to like this Sasur guy. Um, and I think we can learn something from this. The one part that she mentioned that I didn't clip was that, you know, basically his students did a seance with him after he died, so to say, and they kind of like butchered his work and try to fit it into some normal um, normalcy because I guess he was a um, anti-establishment type guy and that um, <clears throat> they tried to squeeze what he did into the, the standard form and failed in many ways but they actually made him famous through this butchering process and now they are discovering okay well they didn't do such a good job so I guess someone has to go back and revisit all that that's what the lady did in a way um, and I guess what we can learn here is uh, publish or perish and in order to get a certain level of publicity you need to adhere to certain rules normative rules that we talked about um, <clears throat> on this show which I'm not following either. Um, and I guess... Uh, well, I guess that's why uh, I don't have millions of listeners. But also, hey, there's tons and tons of content. And every, every uh, body, every person has their own podcast now. My wife's going to start her own soon. So um, we got to just thank Mr. Curry 
for getting us started. And um, I also wanted to say something about the No Agenda show. That um, it's not only the No Agenda show that we should support, but the whole concept of the Value for Value Network and um, rejecting advertising. Now, I think that talking about your show is a form of advertising, self-aggrandization, and should also be avoided. Uh, <clears throat> a certain level of self-identification is important. Um, but, like, if I listen to the Free Talk Live radio, I mean, it seems like they're only pushing Bitcoin all the time and whatever is in their self-interest. And um, I think that's also a flaw in this libertarianism or total commercialism that if everything is just a means to commercialization and commercialization is the means to liberty I mean you know buying someone's product is a way of supporting them and saying thank you giving them money is the transaction I mean that's kind of like what I got from listening to them and um, on the no agenda stream there's a lot more acceptance um, if you look at the, well, coming from the open source world, there's actually more, um, censorship in some of these open source communities where everything is going in a certain political direction. Um, and <clears throat> so we need to find some kind of happy medium. I guess that uh, all media is a tool of some kind. Um, and I guess this uh, podcast as well is, is a tool of some kind, but it's a tool of random, let me tell you. I mean, I do pursue this as a means of self-improvement and also uh, documenting things. And sharing, um, this is an experiment in new technology. I really have high, high hopes, very high hopes for podcasting or for a interactive um, system, which we're about a billion years away from. And um, <clears throat> a billion years away from that. But we're slowly making progress in the direction of understanding. And uh, <clears throat> I really like uh, what I'm learning from Haskell again, which is the, um, the human or mathematical side of things, of types, algebraic types. And um, modeling with that so I'm going to be exploring that a lot more and I will keep you posted I just wish I had uh, some more time in the day to work on this stuff I guess I have to work in the evening instead of just chilling out so I did try last night so uh, yeah I will right, we'll talk to you all soon see ya